Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep Podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep Podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. Welcome to Human Monsters. Martin John Bryant was born on May 7, 1967, in Hobart, Tasmania, Australia. He grew up in Lena Valley and Carnovan Bay. There were signs of mental illness and maladaptive behavior from his early childhood. As his mother recalled in 2011, when he was little, she would frequently find broken toys around the house. She described him using adjectives like annoying and different. Psychiatric analysis foretold a future where he would never be able to keep a job because he was so disagreeable. He would only upset his co-workers and supervisors. His mother wasn't the only person from his early years who observed disturbing behavior in Martin. Once while diving, he pulled a snorkel from another boy's mouth, leaving him in danger of drowning. On another occasion, he cut down trees on a neighbor's property without permission. His teachers found him to be disconnected from reality and devoid of emotion. 
He was also remembered as being disruptive at school. He was occasionally violent and was frequently bullied. Martin Bryant was suspended from Newtown Primary School in 1977. A psychological assessment was conducted following this incident. Among the many disclosures was the fact that he tortured animals. Bryant returned to school the next year, and though there was a general improvement in his behavior, he bullied younger children verbally. Bryant was eventually transferred to the Special Education Unit of Newtown High School in 1980. His behavior and academic performance continued to deteriorate. Little could be done to reform his behavior and work ethic. He was evaluated by a mental health professionals once again, and they found indicators of a disturbed temperament and an intellectual disability. In fact, he was assessed for a disability pension when he left the school in 1983. One psychiatrist wrote, Cannot read or write, does a bit of gardening and watches TV. Only his parents' efforts prevent further deterioration. Could be schizophrenic and parents face a bleak future with him. Bryant qualified for the disability pension, though he worked as a handyman and gardener. Years later, he would be examined by a forensic psychiatrist who found him to be borderline mentally disabled with an IQ of 66, which is typical for an 11-year-old. He was also diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome in adulthood. In 1987, Martin Bryant was 19 years old. He met 54-year-old Helen Mary Elizabeth Harvey. She was an heiress to part of the Tattersall's lottery fortune. He met her while on the lookout for new customers for his landscaping business. Harvey lived with her mother, Hilza, at the time. She befriended Martin when she hired him to mow the lawn and attend to other tasks at the house, such as feeding her 14 dogs and 40 cats, who lived in the substantial garage next to her mansion, which had been in a state of neglect. After Helen's mother passed away, Helen invited Martin to live with her. She became a spendthrift with her inheritance and would go on shopping sprees with Martin in tow. Whether this brought joy to Martin's life or not, when he was reassessed for his pension, this note was attached to the paperwork. Father protects him from any occasion which might upset him as he continually threatens violence. Martin tells me he would like to go around shooting people. It would be unsafe to allow Martin out of his parents' control. In 1991, Helen and Martin moved to a farm called Taurusville in the township of Copping as their neglectful ownership of pets was deemed unacceptable. They were no longer allowed to own animals. Their neighbors were never completely at ease with Martin Bryant in the neighborhood. For instance, he always carried an air rifle with him in public and would fire it at tourists who stopped to purchase produce from a stall on the highway. At night, he would go on the prowl, firing the rifle at dogs that barked at him. Though he would make an effort to befriend those dogs, they all avoided him. October 20th, 1992. Helen was killed in an automobile accident. Martin was inside the car at the time. He was treated for neck and back injuries for seven months. He was investigated by police as a possible suspect in the accident. He was known for seizing the wheel and caused three accidents in the past. Helen told people it was the reason she never drove faster than 60 kilometers per hour. Despite his treacherous conduct on the road, Martin was named as the sole beneficiary of Helen's will. She bequeathed assets to him totaling in $550,000. As his mother did not consider him capable of handling his finances like a competent adult, she applied for and was granted a guardianship order. The assets were managed by public trustees. 
His intellectual disability was used as justification for this action. He soon inherited even more money. His father committed suicide, and Martin received $250,000 from a superannuation fund. Martin sold the farm and copping for $143,000. He kept the mansion in Newtown. Martin's appearance changed drastically at this time. He had been in the habit of wearing white overalls, but now he started to dress at the standard one would have normally expected from Helen's former associates. His outfits were remembered as bizarre, however. He would wear something like a gray linen suit with a cravat, lizard skin shoes, and a Panama hat. He carried a briefcase with him during the day, telling people he had a well-paying career, even though he was living as an heir. He had a favorite restaurant, and when he dined there, he would often wear an electric blue suit, flared pants, and a ruffled shirt. He didn't exactly make the impression he had intended, whatever that would have consisted of. As the restaurant's proprietor put it, it was horrible. Everyone was laughing at him, even the customers. I really felt suddenly quite sorry for him. I realized this guy didn't really have any friends. Indeed, after Helen and his father died, Martin felt lonely. From 1993 to 1995, he sought companionship overseas on 14 separate occasions. It proved to be elusive. People held aloof to him in foreign lands as much as they did in Australia. He only enjoyed the conversations he had with fellow travelers in planes, what author Chuck Polinick referred to as single-serving friends. Late 1995 Martin Bryant became despondent. Depression led to suicidal ideation. As he put it, he had, quote, had enough. Commenting on this state of affairs, he said, I just felt more people were against me. When I tried to be friendly toward them, they just walked away. Prior to this phase, he had always consumed alcohol in moderation. Now he was drinking heavily. On a typical day, he would drink half a bottle of Sambuca and a bottle of Bailey's Irish Cream, supplementing with port wine and sweetened alcoholic beverages. Alcohol consumption is never recommended for someone with his psychological and neurological composition. The downward spiral was underway. April 28, 1996. Martin Bryant had plans for this day. He had a grudge against society, and he had a punishment in mind for their indifference. He said to a neighbor one day, I'll do something that will make everyone remember me. Unfortunately, that sentiment would prove to be indisputable. He was prepared. His plan required that he be meticulous and prepared. He was certainly well equipped. He bought a large green duffel bag, hundreds of rounds of ammunition, two semi-automatic rifles, and an assault shotgun. He took the duffel bag with him as he headed off in his car at 9.47 a.m., He drove down the Arthur Highway to a bed and breakfast called Seascape. His family had a history with Seascape, and it wasn't remembered fondly. Martin's father, Maurice, tried to buy the property, but before he could secure financing, it was purchased by David Martin and his wife, Nolene. Maurice was bitter about the outcome. He believed that David Martin and his wife only bought the property out of spite to hurt the Bryant family. Martin didn't question it, and he became as resentful as his father. He even blamed them for Maurice's suicide. Just before noon, Martin pulled into Seascape. He took up the AR-15 rifle and approached the front entrance. When he spotted Nolene, he shot her multiple times until he killed her. When David Martin showed up to ascertain the cause of the commotion, Martin shot him, which knocked him to the ground. This didn't result in his immediate death, 
Martin gagged him with a washcloth and grabbed a large cooking knife from the kitchen counter and stabbed David unto his death. For the first time that day, Martin Bryant got even. Martin Bryant pulled out to Port Arthur historical site sometime later. He knew there would be a large congregation of people, many of them tourists. After parking his car, he took out the green duffel bag and walked into the Broad Arrow Cafe. He had his lunch outdoors, where he tried to connect with tourists. He approached this by making small talk. It wasn't the usual garden variety humdrum chit-chat about the weather. He mentioned to one couple what appeared to him to be a conspicuous absence of visitors from Japan. With one man, he brought up the fact that there was a sizable population of yellow jacket wasps in the area. When Martin finished his meal, he walked into the cafe with his tray and the green duffel bag. After setting his tray down on a table, he reached into the duffel bag and pulled out a video camera. He set it up so it was facing the crowd. He wanted to capture for posterity the act he had planned for so long. He pulled from the bag the bloodied knife with which he stabbed David Martin and put it on the table. None of the 60 patrons noticed when he pulled out the Colt AR-15 semi-automatic. Not even Malaysian tourists Mo Ye Ying and Su Lang Chung. As they dined, he pulled the trigger and perforated them with bullets. They died instantaneously. He turned to his left, where Mike Sargent was standing. He shot him in the head. The bullet only grazed him, but he fell to the floor. He was lightheaded, but otherwise remained in the pink. Martin kept shooting and scored a direct hit on the back of Kate Elizabeth Scott's head. The shot killed her. She was Mike Surgeon's girlfriend. Seeing that there was grave danger afoot, some patrons dove for cover while others scrambled to leave the crowded spots. Jason Winter attempted to distract Bryant by throwing his tray at him. Jason's wife Joanne sought refuge on the floor out of the path of Bryant's bullets with her 15-month-old child in tow. Anthony Nightingale shouted, No, not here! Martin Bryant responded with a bullet that blasted straight through his neck, killing him immediately. Bryant reached into his pocket and loaded another magazine of ammunition into his gun. A group of seniors had just sat down to dine when Peter Croswell became aware of the danger. He tried to shield his friends from the gunshots, going as far as to pull Thelma Walker and Pamela Law to the floor. Martin Bryant shot his friend Kevin Sharp execution style. Another member of their party, Walter Bennett, was shot in his back. The same bullet tore through him and struck Raymond Sharp, with both men dying instantaneously. John Fiddler, Gay Fiddler, Gerald Broom, and Patricia Barker were struck by bullet fragments. They survived the incident, though the trauma of seeing the look on the shooter's face would remain indefinitely. Tony Kiston stood just in time to get shot in the head. The bullet shattered the structure of his face, though he was able to push his wife Sarah to the floor. His friend Andrew Mills wasn't quite so lucky. He was shot in the head and died on the spot. After investigating the scene, security manager Ian Kingston ran out to the parking lot and told the assemblage of tourists to follow him to safety. Most of them took him seriously. Everyone could hear the sounds of gunshots inside the cafe. Some apparently had a death wish, for they were curious and wanted to get a closer look at and feel for the commotion. Meanwhile, Martin Bryant blocked the entrance to the cafe. He trained his gun on anybody who moved. Graham Culver was struck in his jaw by one of Martin's bullets. He nearly choked to death on his own blood. His wife, Carolyn, survived a shot in her back. 
Their daughter, Sarah Lawton, was killed immediately when Bryant shot her. Bryant shot Mervyn Howard with a bullet that passed all the way through his body and out through a window, shattering the glass. From there, he shot Howard's wife, Mary, in the neck. As she lay bleeding and dying on the floor, Bryant walked over, the shadow of his contempt casting its shade over top of her. He stopped to shoot her in the head. Bryant migrated to the gift shop, which was adjacent to the cafe. The customers had no means of escape. A door at the rear of the building was locked. So far, over the span of 45 seconds, Martin Bryant had already killed 12 people. Ten others were still alive, but bleeding and smarting from their wounds. As Bryant made his way into the gift shop, he shot the two employees stationed at the front counter. 17-year-old Nicole Burgess died instantly after being hit in her head. 26-year-old Elizabeth Howard was shot twice, once in her arm and another in her chest, the latter of which killed her. Many of the patrons laid silently on the floor, desperate to escape, but also reluctant to risk antagonizing the shooter. Gwen Neander decided to risk opening the locked door out back. Bryant shot her in the head, ensuring her immediate demise. He walked further into the gift shop. He shot Peter Crosswell in his buttock after shooting straight through the table with which Croswell was shielding himself. Bryant took a short break to reload his rifle. During the lull in shooting activity, Jason Winter assumed the massacre was over, and he stood. Just as he did, Bryant aimed his rifle at him. Winter put up his hands to safeguard himself. Bryant shot him with a single bullet passing straight through his hand and hitting him in his chest and neck. Bryant fired a second bullet, which hit Winter in the face. He died instantly, falling to the floor. American tourists Dennis Olson and his wife Mary were on the floor beside Jason Winter. They were wounded by bullet fragments, but were otherwise unharmed and survived the incident. Bryant walked to the front entrance of the cafe. He surveyed the scene. Dead bodies, puddles of blood, overturned tables and chairs. Along the way, he spotted Ronald Jerry, Peter Nash, and Pauline Masters. They were alive and hiding. So far, they were unscathed by the attack. As far as Martin Bryant was concerned, this would not do. He emptied his magazine as he dispatched them all in cold blood. Bryant noticed an Asian tourist he managed to overlook. Not only was his magazine empty, but there were no clips in his coat's pockets. Bryant walked over to the table where he deposited the duffel bag. He reloaded the rifle and put the strap of the bag over his shoulder. He walked out to the cafe's deck. His spree killing hadn't even eaten up three minutes, and already 20 people were dead, with 12 seriously wounded. Ian Kingston was in the parking lot out front, shouting at everybody to conceal themselves or jump for cover. Several employees of the cafe had left through the back door and motioned to those they saw in the parking lot to hide or shield themselves. Martin Bryant stepped out of the cafe. He aimed his gun at Ashley John Law, who was in the process of herding tourists to safety toward a parking lot a hundred yards away. He got Law, but missed the group of tourists who were running to the parking lot. The bullets hit some trees. There were tour buses parked in the lot. One of the drivers, Royce Thompson, was shot in the back as he attempted to seek refuge between two buses. He was not killed, and he jumped to the ground and rolled under the bus. He eventually succumbed to his injuries, becoming the massacre's 21st victim. Bryant headed toward the other buses. 
as Bridget Cook approached others to urge them to head to a safe spot. Bryant shot her in the thigh. Her femur was shattered to such a degree that fragments of the bone shot out of her leg and wounded a bus driver named Ian McElwee. Both of them survived the massacre. A crowd was still out in the open and therefore vulnerable to gunfire. They headed to the back of the buses seeking refuge. Bryant witnessed this and opened fire. Following this, he shot at another bus where tourists were screaming as they dashed away from all directions. Winifred Applin ran to the rear corner of a bus but was shot in her side. She died before first responders arrived. Yvonne Lockley was grazed by a bullet in her face. Otherwise, she was unharmed and hid inside a bus without Martin Bryant's knowledge. Bryant shot indiscriminately. A group of tourists ran toward the buses when they were informed they were running in the wrong direction, which turned out to be inaccurate. They wound up in Martin Bryant's crosshairs, and he shot them. Janet Quinn was shot in her back and was left lying on the pavement. Doug Hutchinson was shot in the arm, but ran for cover and found a place to hide. Martin Bryant walked up to his car so he could change rifles. He took up his FNFAL, which was a semi-automatic rifle whose capabilities included firing as many as 700 rounds in one minute. It had been used by military forces operating as part of NATO. The clip held 30,308 rounds. It was also valued for its accuracy in shooting at targets located a long distance away. With the FNFAL, Bryant shot at some tourists who were standing across the field between the buses and the main wall of the penitentiary ruins. He didn't land any hits. Nevertheless, he was satisfied that no one emerged from the massacre unscathed. Whether physically or emotionally, the scars incurred by the survivors would be long-lasting and perhaps permanent. He got into his car for a moment. Bryant spotted some living tourists near the buses. He headed in that direction. When they saw him coming, they ran toward the buses as he started shooting at them. When Bryant approached the first bus, he happened upon Janet Quinn, still wounded and sprawled out on the pavement. He shot her at close range in her back, which killed her instantly. Bryant walked around behind the bus and walked into an open door. He walked up the steps of the bus and saw Elva Gaylard hiding. He aimed his gun at her chest and shot her dead. Bryant spotted Gordon Francis trying to close the door of the next bus over. Martin shot him through the window, which injured Gordon, though he survived. Bryant exited the bus, whereupon he encountered Neville Quinn, Janet Quinn's husband. Neville ran, and Bryant chased him around the bus, firing two shots as he ran. When he caught up with him, he pointed his rifle in his face. Martin said to Neville, No one gets away from me. Quinn pulled his body away from the line of fire, but Bryant shot him in his neck, which left him paralyzed temporarily. Bryant mistakenly concluded that Neville was dead and didn't fire another shot. He walked away. With Bryant gone, Neville crawled over to Janet. She died in his arms a few minutes later. Neville survived the massacre, and his physical wounds healed successfully. The impact of losing his wife was not so quickly mended. Bryant continued to shoot anybody who appeared in his eyeline, like it was a video game, and every dead person was a point. At this point, less than 10 minutes had elapsed since the beginning of the massacre, and already 24 people were dead and 18 were wounded. Bryant walked over to his car and drove away. 
During Martin Bryant's commute, the switchboard at the local 911 intake center nearly blew from the influx of calls that were placed by panicked tourists from Port Arthur reporting a spree killing. The operators could hear gunshots in the background. Having left the parking lot, Martin Bryant drove along a tree-lined road. He spotted Nanette McCock and her children, three-year-old Madeline and six-year-old Alana. The family had been hiding with museum security manager Ian Kingston, but they decided they would be safer if they left the area altogether. Kingston pleaded with her not to leave, but she couldn't be persuaded. Bryant stopped his car and got out. Someone standing nearby recognized him and said, It's him! Bryant put his hand on the woman's shoulder. He ordered her to get on her knees. She complied. She begged him to spare her children. He replied by sticking the rifle in her temple and shooting. She was killed by the shot. He turned from Nanette to Madeline and shot her in the shoulder and a second time in her chest, with the second bullet killing her. Alana ran and hid behind a tree, but Bryant tracked her down. He pushed the barrel of the rifle into her neck and fired, killing her immediately. There were witnesses to these murders, and they fled the scene as Bryant shot at them. They were not wounded. A man named Ian Hamilton called a toll booth that was located nearby and advised the attendant to get down on the floor and stay there until further notice to ensure her safety. She told him it was out of the question. Money would be left unattended. Hamilton said, Don't worry about the bloody money. Just get down on the floor. Bryant got back into his car and drove back towards the toll booth of the park. Drivers in that area were told to vacate the environs because the massacre was still in progress. Some took this advice, but they didn't know they were driving toward the shooter. Other people hid in bushes and hoped they wouldn't be spotted by the shooter. There was pandemonium in the road as drivers scrambled in haste to depart the area. One car driven by Russell Pollard was idling as he waited for a way to turn around and leave the area. Before he could do that, Bryant approached his car. There were three other passengers, Mary Nixon, Helena Salzman, and Robert Salzman. Robert Salzman got out and confronted Martin Bryant. There was a heated verbal confrontation that culminated in Bryant pointing his rifle at Salzman and shooting him at point-blank range. Salzman was killed instantly. Russell Pollard got out from the driver's seat. Bryant shot him in the chest at close range. Pollard died from the wound. Bryant shot the two women dead execution style. He pulled their bodies out and left them on the road. Onlookers were horrified by the sight. The drivers backed away from the scene. Bryant walked over to his car and withdrew several boxes of ammunition, a set of handcuffs, an AR-15 rifle, and a container of gasoline. He put it all in Russell Pollard's car. As Bryant was getting into the car, Graham Sutherland drove up in his car and Bryant opened fire. The bullets shattered the door's glass and punctured the metal. Sutherland put the car in reverse and backed away from the scene without getting shot. Meanwhile, Bryant got into Pollard's car and drove toward the highway that led back to Seascape. He had killed 31 people and wounded 19. Graham Sutherland stopped at a gas station and yelled at all the customers to take cover, telling them about the massacre and warning them that the shooter was still at large and armed to the teeth. They were unsure of the veracity of what he was saying, unconvinced even by the damage to his car. Just then, Martin Bryant pulled up in Russell Pollard's BMW, blocking the path of a car that was trying to leave. Bryant jumped out and pointed his gun at the driver, Glenn Pears. He commanded him to get out of the car. Pears knew he was serious. 
He put his hands up and begged Bryant to spare his girlfriend, Zoe Hall, who was sitting in the passenger side. Bryant grabbed Pears and dragged him to the BMW. He pushed him into the trunk and shut it, locking him in. He walked up to Pears' car and shot Zoe three times as she tried to climb away from the line of fire. She was killed by the shots. Witnesses ran and hid behind some trees that encircled the gas station. The clerk working at the station locked the front doors and told everyone still inside to hide in back of the store. He reached under the counter and emerged with a rifle of his own. He loaded the gun, but Bryant had already driven away in the BMW with Glenn Pears as his cargo. A few minutes later, a police cruiser pulled up. The officer was told about what had just taken place at the gas station. He got back in his car and took to the highway in an attempt to catch up with the shooter. Martin Bryant was parked in front of the Fox and Hounds Resort Hotel. He stopped by the road and shot at some people who were milling about in front of the hotel. They ran for cover. Not having heard about the massacre at Port Arthur, they were puzzled to find themselves dodging bullets. A car drove in. Bryant turned and shot the windshield, but he did not injure the driver or passengers. Another motorist was approaching and slowed down when he saw the man shooting. He assumed he was hunting rabbits. He and his wife were shocked when the man turned around and pointed his rifle at them. They tried to speed away, but Bryant shot through to the throttle cable, which caused the car to lose power. They were lucky in that they were heading downhill and were able to use the momentum to advance toward a safer location. Bryant continued to shoot at them. He shattered the back windshield and landed a hit on Linda White's arm. Another car approached without having been forewarned about the spree killing that was underway. Martin Bryant shattered the windshield with one shot. Driver Douglas Horner was injured by the broken glass projectiles. Horner hit the gas to try to speed away from the scene. As Horner and his passenger drove down the hill, they saw Michael Wanders and Linda White waving at them to get them to stop. Their car was inoperable. Horner was so panicked he initially drove right past them, but soon thought better of it and backed up to let the couple ride in the back seat. More traffic passed the gunman, who was still keen to shoot anybody in his path. Still dissatisfied with his body count, he shot at Susan Williams, injuring her hand as her husband, Simon Williams, sped past the scene. The car behind them went into reverse and sped away when Bryant started shooting at them. He missed the car's occupants. There was now an absence of potential victims. Bryant put the rifle in the passenger seat and drove towards Seascape. When Martin Bryant arrived at Seascape, his body count was at 34, with 23 injured survivors. He got out of the car and opened the trunk. He pointed his gun at Glenn Pears and led him into the building. Once inside, he handcuffed him to the railing of the staircase. Bryant walked back out of the building to the car. He poured the canister of gasoline all over the car and lit it on fire. The fire engulfed the car in seconds. Moments later, two police officers arrived at the scene when they saw the car burning. Bryant began shooting at them from where he was stationed in the front window of Seascape. He didn't wound them, but they were forced to seek cover in a ditch. They radioed for backup. The operator dispatched a large party of officers to the scene. Meanwhile, everybody present at Port Arthur was still on edge because they didn't know where the shooter was and if he would return. The only relief came in the form of approaching sirens, which were heard from miles away. Up until this point, there were conflicting reports regarding the physical appearance of the shooter. 
Now that two police officers called in a description, the others would know exactly what to look out for. There were so many medics at the Port Arthur site, they had to arrange a triage area to process all the victims. The local hospital reserved an entire unit to treat the trauma victims. All first responders were overwhelmed. The incident was without precedent. The police surrounded Seascape. Information began to trickle in regarding the shooter's identity. It was suggested that he was Martin Bryant, who was known to the police in the past for his behavior while in possession of a pellet gun in the town of Copping. The incident horrified all of Australia and eventually the world as the news cycle was galvanized by the story. The officer assigned to the task of negotiating with Martin Bryant was named Terry McCarthy. He arrived around 3 p.m. and saw Bryant shooting at the officers randomly, missing all targets. All he knew about the shooter was the name and information submitted by relatives who suggested he might be experiencing symptoms consistent with the onset of schizophrenia. While the other officers set up a command post, McCarthy called the hotel's phone number. There was no answer the first few calls, but then a man answered. The man said, hello. McCarthy later noted how calm and cheerful the man sounded. MacArthur said, Is this Martin? Bryant said, It's me, Jamie. Bryant was fond of adopting the name Jamie when it suited him. McCarthy, Jamie, how are things going in there? Bryant, Oh, couldn't be better, just like on a Hawaiian holiday. McCarthy, A Hawaiian holiday? Bryant, Yes, that's correct, sir. McCarthy, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you mean by that. Bryant, I don't know myself, no. At one point, McCarthy asked Bryant how things were going inside. He told police that he was making dinner for the hostages. The police weren't sure what to believe since Bryant sounded as confounded by his actions as everyone else. The conversation took many twists and turns, with Bryant claiming at one point that he had been surfing in the afternoon. He never mentioned the massacre at Port Arthur. Dusk was turning to night, and Martin Bryant was uneasy about the police presence surrounding the hotel. He noticed that a police sniper was positioned near the house with a gun pointing in his direction. He discovered how unnerving it is to be on the receiving end. He and McCarthy discussed it. Bryant, what I've actually found out, man, is that one of your boys is right outside, northeast, I'd say, with an infrared scope. Can you just ask him to move on? McCarthy, we will do that. Bryant, he's going to shoot your main man. McCarthy, Martin, we have a real situation here. There was a terrible shooting at Port Arthur. Bryant, was anyone hurt? McCarthy, there were a number of people hurt. Bryant, they weren't killed? McCarthy later reported that Bryant sounded disappointed to hear that people were injured but otherwise alive. McCarthy, I don't know the full details. Bryant became noticeably agitated. McCarthy, Martin, what do you say we end this, and you put down your weapon and come outside? Bryant, no, I think I want a heli. You need to get me a heli here. It always complicates things when the perp wants a helicopter to fly away where police cannot find them. Bryant, you can buy a heli. I've got the money. Don't you understand? I've got the money. I've got all the wealth I want. McCarthy. All right. Bryant. I want the heli now. The battery of the wireless phone the police had been using to communicate with Bryant suddenly ran out of power. They weighed their options. 
They could storm the house while risking more harm to potential victims. They could also wait for Bryant to come out on his own. They decided to wait until sunrise to decide on their next initiative. With the advent of daybreak, Martin Bryant had been sequestered in Seascape for 18 hours. He had not been in communication with police since their cordless phone went dead. The building was now surrounded by officers. He had not been in communication with police since their cordless phone went dead. The building was still surrounded by officers. With the approach of 8 a.m., smoke began billowing out of the main building. An inferno burned its way throughout the entire structure within a span of 10 minutes. Whatever Bryant envisioned with the arson as part of his master plan, it must not have worked because he ran out of the house with his clothing burning. Police tackled him to the ground and put out the flames with the fire-retardant blanket. He was badly burned, but nevertheless arrested. When first responders rushed into the building to search for survivors, they found Glenn Pierce handcuffed to the railing and dead. Martin Bryant's final victim. At Royal Hobart Hospital, Martin Bryant was treated for his burns, while the victims of his massacre were treated for gunshot wounds elsewhere in the facility, with 35 people in line for a space in the morgue. While Martin Bryant was in recovery, his mere presence wreaked havoc. Armed police guarded his room against vigilantes and the possibility of his escape. As if Bryant hadn't caused enough pain and outrage already, he was verbally abusive to the nurses who treated him, issuing threats and making shooting gestures with his hands as they walked by. He was handcuffed to the bed, so there were no threats he could act on. The extent of his burns was such that they had to be dressed with netted bandages to keep the skin from falling off his body during the healing process. In the meantime, Martin Bryant was formally charged with all the murders at Port Arthur. He was legally within the custody of the Australian Justice Department. The vigilante threats were no joke. People were flying in from other parts of Australia to avenge the murders. Though it was the officer's charge to protect Bryant, Officer Phil Pike decided that he would only be defending the doctors and nurses. Otherwise, he would have happily tossed Bryant to anybody who called for his blood. Pike wrote a memoir, and in it he detailed the experience for the reader. He noted that Bryant would alternate from the disposition of a cold-blooded killer to something more akin to a wounded child. Pike was especially appalled by the murder of the two toddlers. At one point, he walked up to Bryant's bed to make his feelings clear. As Martin looked at him with a cold-blooded lack of humanity, Pike tapped the gun in his holster and said, gritting his teeth, If you get out of those cuffs, Martin, this is for you, as I can fight back, unlike your other victims. When Martin Bryant appeared in court for the first time, he pled not guilty. He later changed his plea to guilty. During his sentencing hearing, the judge made the following pronouncements. Taking account of the medical evidence and of his lack of insight into the magnitude and effects of his conduct, apparent in all his appearances before this court, I have no reason to hope and every reason to fear that he, the defendant, will remain indefinitely as disturbed and insensitive as he was when planning and executing the crimes of which he now stands convicted. Martin Bryant, on each of the 35 counts of murder in this indictment, you are sentenced to imprisonment for the term of your natural life. I order that you not be eligible for parole in respect of any such a sentence. On each of the remaining counts in the indictment, 
you are sentenced to imprisonment for 21 years to be served concurrently with each other and with the concurrent sentence of life imprisonment already imposed. In respect of each sentence of 21 years, I order that you likewise not be eligible for parole. All told, Martin Bryant was given 35 life sentences for the murders, plus additional penalties for wounding the survivors. His sentence amounted to a grand total of 1,035 years. He is currently incarcerated in Risden Prison in Tasmania. He is housed in a segregated unit and does not socialize with other inmates. Though the presence of murderers is tolerated, Bryant was known to have killed two small children, and that would have led to him being assaulted and or killed. Any possibility of Martin Bryant being reformed is highly unlikely, as noted by Dr. Wilf Lopez. His evaluation found that Bryant is nothing but a cold-blooded killer, devoid of remorse. In fact, he has often boasted to prison staff about what he has done. That didn't represent the last of Bryant's off-putting behavior. On one occasion, he asked a nurse if she had children. She said she had, and he told her it would be nice if she brought them for a visit. He followed up by pointing his hand at her and making a shooting gesture. He once offered his sperm to a female guard so she could bear a child for him. A great deal of time and effort has been invested to ensure Bryant's safety, up to and including checking his food to ensure it hasn't been poisoned. Many people approaching him from an activist position object to the practice of providing him with such protections. He will be eligible for parole in the year 3032. Surely Mother Nature wouldn't waste immortality on a piece of shit like Martin Bryant. The Australian government decided to introduce and mandate new restrictions on gun ownership. They created the National Firearms Agreement. A ban on all automatic and semi-automatic weapons was passed. The government offered a financial incentive to owners of these guns. Over 750,000 of such items were submitted. The Broad Arrow Cafe was demolished. In its wake, a memorial garden was built and planted in honor of the people who died there on April 28, 1996. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.